The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode, and by God's grace, episodes to follow, we continue to look at various apparent, supposed Bible contradictions presented by atheists, skeptics, and humanists. We will examine them against what the Bible says in context according to proper exegesis, using the languages in question, correct grammar, the culture of the day, and most importantly, the prism of spiritual discernment given by God to those who truly desire to understand his revelation of himself and his relationship to man. As a prelude to answering any apparent Bible contradictions, if you as a listener have not done so already, listening to the introductory episode regarding questions about contradictions will be an indispensable prologue to fully understanding or, more importantly, answering any question or apparent contradiction which exists. Therefore, I will have to rely from this point forward on the listener to faithfully adopt the biblical posture of the Berean Bible student who is willing and able 
to do their own respective homework in order to avoid the pitfalls inherent from failing to do so. With this in mind, let us consider addressing the following questions about apparent Bible contradictions put forward by Mr. Ash. For a next randomly selected apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash asks, Isn't God being hypocritical when he commands his people not to steal? In order for Mr. Ash to arrive at this apparent Bible contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, quote, Thou shalt not steal, unquote. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 11, quote, Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another, unquote. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, quote, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning, unquote. And Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 19, quote, Neither shalt thou steal, unquote. Having read these, Mr. Ashton compares the above verses to the following verses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 22, quote, But every woman shall borrow of her neighbor, and of her that sojourneth in her house jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and you shall spoil the Egyptians, unquote. Exodus chapter 12, verse 35, quote, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptian jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians, unquote. And finally, Luke chapter 19, verses 29 through 35, quote, And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, wherein yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if the man asked, Why do you loose him? Thus shalt you say unto him, because the Lord hath need of him. And they that were sent went their way, and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And he said, The Lord hath need of him. And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon." Unquote. So from these two set of verses, Mr. Ash concludes that God is hypocritical when it comes to stealing. What Mr. Ash ignores is the reality that God is the creator, sustainer, and owner of everything, everywhere. Let us recall that God spoke and created everything that exists from nothing. We can understand where Mr. Ash gets confused because Mr. Ash starts with a priori bias that man is the ultimate source of authority for meaning, morals, ethics, truth, beauty, reality, and significance. As a logical consequence, any time God does or doesn't do something which is in agreement with Mr. Ash's worldview paradigm, Mr. Ash concludes that it is God who is in error. But the reality is that it is God who is sovereign and is the ultimate source of authority for all things. Put simply, God cannot by definition steal anything because everything, everywhere, 
gold, silver, jewels, raiment, colts, etc., all belong to him as his property. If I, you, the Egyptians, or anyone else has anything, it is only because God has first given those items to us as items to be used first and foremost to glorify God for his use. It follows that while the Bible uses the word quote-unquote owner for various items, in truth such items are relative in the overall scope of God's sovereign creation. Consequently, God is at full sovereign control of all material things and he is within his right to use, move, reallocate, destroy, or do whatever he pleases to do with those items according to his will. At the same time, God can tell his creation, man, who is not sovereign, that no man, including Mr. Ash, has God's authority to unilaterally break certain rules, such as stealing or taking something which does not belong to them. So in the case of the Egyptians, firstly, all of the things which the Israelites took from the Egyptians actually belong to God. Secondly, it should be pointed out that the Egyptians had had the Israelites in bondage for 400 years, during which time the Egyptians were made rich and owed their very lives to the fact that Joseph had kept the Egyptians alive during the famine. So from one perspective, what God permitted the Israelites to take was 400 years of back wages. Likewise, in the case of the colt, Jesus, who is God, tells his disciples to go and get a colt. So if Jesus is God, then he, as God, created the owner and the colt, and both are his property to ultimately do with as he pleases. If Jesus is not God, and there is no God, then stealing is really an agreed-upon consensus of society at any given time and nothing more. In this case, we don't need to accuse God of hypocrisy because there is no God in existence to accuse. More importantly, the verses tell us that the disciples did contact the owner and advised him that the colt was needed by Jesus. Nowhere do we read that the owner or anyone else accused Jesus or his disciples of stealing. Thus, we would have to assume that the disciples stole the colt when, in fact, it could very well be that the owner agreed to loan or to the taking of the colt for God's purpose. Since Jesus is God, it would be within his ability to know that this particular owner would be happy to give the colt to the disciples since Jesus would know the owner's heart. In the end, there is no contradiction because the first set of verses deal with God's prohibition of humans taking things, i.e. stealing, which do not belong to them. However, it is critical to remember with the first, as well as with the second set of verses, that by definition, God himself is exempt from the issue of stealing since God is the creator, owner, and sustainer of all things which exist. The next question Mr. Ash asks is, is the Sabbath holy or not? In order to arrive at this contradiction, Mr. Ash reads the following verses. Exodus chapter 20 verse 8, 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, unquote. Exodus chapter 20, verse 10, quote, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor their maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates, unquote. Exodus chapter 31, verse 15, quote, Six days may work be done, but in the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whosoever doeth any work in the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death, unquote. And finally, Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 35, quote, And while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. And they that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and unto all the congregation, and they put him in ward, because it was not declared what should be done to him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. Unquote. Having read these, Mr. Ash then compares these to the following verses. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Quote, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Unquote. John chapter 5, verse 16. Quote, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Unquote. And finally, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Quote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, or in respect of a holiday, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, unquote. So, what's the answer? Well, here, as in many instances, Mr. Ash suffers from a severe absence of spiritual discernment, as well as a fundamental lack of understanding of what the good news of the gospel is about. Sadly, it also happens to be an issue for many who would label themselves as quote-unquote Christian, but have in fact made themselves part of a cult due to their misunderstanding or misapplication of scripture. Either way, this topic is one of those perennial topics which causes great confusion to many. To begin with, I have dealt with the answer to this question at great length in the episode entitled, The Day of Rest. For those wanting a more comprehensive discussion of this topic, I would direct those interested to listen. In lieu of that, I will attempt to summarize and answer the question. First of all, as you will recall in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, we read, quote, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made, unquote. As was pointed out, this day of rest, or Sabbath, which simply means rest, was first initiated prior to Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, i.e. mankind, fell into sin. This day of rest was prior to the giving of the law or commandments which flowed from the events post-Genesis 3. We also noted that the true connotation of the word quote-unquote rest was in reference to the reality that God had already done 
everything that was needed to be done in the previous six days, and as a result of having fully completed that work, God was now finished, and the axiomatic result was that there was nothing more that could be done. Thus, we theorize that at that point, had Adam and Eve not sinned, the only other alternative was that Adam and Eve had only to continue to abide in trust and faith in God's finished work, and thereby would have likewise continued in their perfect fellowship with God, which they had enjoyed up to that point. It was only when Adam and Eve chose to take their eyes off of God and instead place their trust in the promise of the knowledge of good and evil as a means of being like God that they sinned. As we know now, Satan's lie that the knowledge of good and evil can make one like God was and is empty and counterproductive for two reasons. One, God had already created Adam and Eve in his own likeness and declared them to be, quote, very good, unquote. Thus, Satan's lie was aimed to, in effect, to transfer the basis for declaring man's righteousness from that of what God provides to what mankind can ostensibly provide for himself apart from God on his own merits. Two, while the forbidden tree did promise, quote-unquote, knowledge of good and evil, it never promised the power or ability to perform the good or abstain from the evil. All of this is the essential meaning and message of the Sabbath or the day of rest. After Genesis 3, mankind had now committed himself collectively to be like God via our own efforts and merits based upon the knowledge of good and evil. In essence, since mankind chose this path, God spent this next several thousand years progressively revealing the knowledge mankind wanted in various forms such as the Mosaic Law, including the Ten Commandments. These various codified laws were and are intended by God to be the schoolmaster, which point out ultimately the futility and inability that man has in fully keeping 100% of the law 100% of the time. The entire purpose of the law was and is to teach mankind that even the fullest knowledge of the law in its entirety only reveals how completely inadequate we are. The law is a reflection of God's perfection and holiness. When we look at the reflection and compare it to ourselves, we are intended to see how imperfect, how unholy, how inadequate, how unable we are apart from God. The law should drive us back to a complete surrender, trust, and faith in God's completed work. As Paul states in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, quote, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, unquote. Enter Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. Jesus fully kept all the law as stated in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Quote, 
For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin." Unquote. Thus, Jesus being God was able to not only have the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus had the power to fully keep the law and to do good and refrain from evil. Jesus was the very image of God who was declared by God to be, quote, very good, unquote, and in whom God was well pleased, Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. Because Jesus fulfilled all righteousness and pleased God, he was able to say on the cross, quote, it is finished, unquote. This statement of it is finished, or more literally, quote, paid in full, unquote, was a legal statement declaring that he had made full payment for those whom God has chosen to be reconciled back to fellowship with himself. In this event, those whom God has called will repent of their own vain attempts of our own righteousness, our own merits, our own works, via knowledge of good and evil. We will, by God's grace instead, rest and enter into God's Sabbath, which is a state where we trust and have faith in the finished work of Jesus and His imputed righteousness to us. We reckon ourselves and our old nature dead and buried with Christ. We also recognize that by faith, God's Spirit, which raised Christ, will also raise us to the newness of life, and we are given a new nature, created in the image of Christ, where we abide in Him and He in us. So the Sabbath, or the day of rest, is a type and a shadow which even by Mr. Ash's opinion would be obvious if he would but continue reading one of his supposed proof texts above, namely Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, quote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holiday, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, unquote. Now, continuing Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, immediately following, goes on to prove the point by saying, quote, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ, unquote. In other words, the day of rest, the Sabbath, is a shadow. Jesus is the substance. Thus, we have numerous Old Testament scriptures where God commands his people to abide by the Sabbath. When and if they don't, there is punishment. Why? Because whenever and wherever mankind fails to refrain from our own works and merits and instead rest in the finished work of God, we axiomatically are separated from God. We have sinned and the punishment for sin is death or separation from God. The problem was and is that as time went on, mankind, the Israelites in particular, failed to recognize the law and the commandment for what they were, a schoolmaster for repentance. Instead of being convicted of sin and unrighteousness, 
The Israelite people, in many instances, began to institutionalize and worship the rules themselves. They, in fact, began to believe that their attempts to follow the rules, such as the Sabbath, would impress and please God. They, in fact, became self-righteous, vain, and conceited with their own outward works, rather than allowing the schoolmaster to do its work, reveal their heart, repent, and look to God by faith. It is within this context that we read Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13, quote, Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting, unquote. This and other verses reveal God's contempt for those who attempt to justify themselves before God via their own works or merits. As Romans chapter 1 confirms, there is none that does good. All of our supposed quote-unquote good works, apart from God, are filthy rags or iniquity, i.e. sin. There is no contradiction here because in Isaiah, God is not saying in context that his institution of the Sabbath, i.e. the day of rest, is iniquity or vain. Instead, correctly understood, God is saying that in Isaiah, that his people's reliance and trust in rituals, dead works, and self-righteousness is vanity and iniquity. This is the same dynamic truth of Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. You are either trusting God and his finished work, or you are trusting in your own unfinished, imperfect, inadequate works. In terms of John chapter 5, verse 16, which says, quote, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day, unquote. Mr. Ash includes this verse under the assumption that Jesus is here contradicting the Sabbath day commandment. Now, if we fail to understand what the schoolmaster of the law teaches about the Sabbath, i.e. the day of rest, then we, like Mr. Ash, will conclude along with the Jews in this story that there is a contradiction here. Likewise, the Jews in this story, Mr. Ash or anyone else who does so, will ultimately persecute and attempt to slay Jesus. However, if we correctly understand the Sabbath, i.e. the day of rest, then we realize that whenever or wherever God's chosen people abide in trust and faith in God's finished work, we have axiomatically entered into God's rest, i.e. the Sabbath. This rest is not simply one day a week. It is every day. It is constant and never-ending. Mr. Ash and the Jews of both Jesus and Isaiah's day were and are laboring under the misunderstanding that the Sabbath, i.e. the day of rest, was and is limited to a 24-hour period between Friday evening and Saturday evening. During this period, Mr. Ash further assumes that the rest in question deals with a limitation of physical exertion. Consequently, the Jews of Jesus' day wind up believing, for example, that one could not heal people, one could not 
help people in distress, etc. However, rightly understood, we must go back to the example of Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, where God had finished all his work, and we now rest in the trust of his covering image. We then must couple this with John chapter 19, verse 30, which says, quote, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, unquote. Both situations are coupled. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 is the type and shadow. John chapter 19, verse 30 is the substance. Both talk about God unilaterally accomplishing and finishing a completed work for and on our behalf. There is nothing we can add to or take away from it. All that we can do is to rest in faith and trust in that completed work. Finally, we have Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, which says, quote, Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holiday, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, unquote. As pointed out, Mr. Ash ignores verse 17, which explains everything. Quote, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Unquote. Here, Paul simply points out what the good news of the new covenant revealed. Prior to Genesis 3, we had fellowship with God and rested in his finished work. Between Genesis 3 and John chapter 19, verse 30, we have the progressive revelation of the law, God's schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and repentance in our trust and the knowledge of good and evil, i.e. the law. After John chapter 19, verse 30, we have the work of Christ wherein we rest constantly, having full assurance of acceptance through the imputed righteousness of Jesus to our account. This assurance was in contrast to the beliefs of a group within the early church, as well as some now who are generally called Judaizers. The Judaizers then and now insist that Christians need to reapply the law and or the commandments to our lives after we have accepted and been redeemed by Christ. In the case of the Colossians, Paul was saying, don't let these people judge you regarding the law, i.e. eating meat, drinking, or keeping the Sabbath. These laws, the commandments, are a shadow, and Christ is the substance. In other words, Jesus fulfilled these things. He finished these things, just as Genesis states God finished his work. Now, just as then, there is no more work to be done. It is complete. All we can or should do is to exercise trust and faith in the finished work, the covering image of God's likeness, which is very good, in which God is well pleased. So, to succinctly answer the question, we find a great many verses in the Bible which give commandment and punishment for failing to observe the Sabbath. The reason is that whenever and wherever man fails to rest, or Sabbath, in an abiding relationship held by faith in God, mankind is separated as a result and dies spiritually. 
The reason we see Jesus and the New Testament writers saying that the ritual law of the Sabbath is no longer binding is because Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the law, had come. Jesus is God. Jesus is he who gives us rest. If we abide in faith in the finished work of Christ, we rest, i.e. Sabbath, every day in his righteousness, not just one. In the end, there is no contradiction here because the schoolmaster of the law, including the law of the Sabbath, are analogous to training wheels on a bike intended to help us learn how to ride freely by God's grace and by his power in Christ without them. Once we live in Christ by faith and have his power to live increasingly according to his will and ride this bike, we no longer need the training wheels of the law. Mr. Ash has simply blindly chosen to look at the Bible, which in this analogy is akin to a manual for learning to ride a bike. Mr. Ash looks at chapter 1 and sees the instruction to ride with training wheels, and then looks at the final chapter where the training wheels are said to be a hindrance and are no longer necessary because the rider has learned and is proficient. Mr. Ash then sees a contradiction instead of seeing a design for progressive revelation of, or learning, which is the point of the manual, in this case, the Bible. In all, to date, in this series, we have examined and answered an amended total of 19 questions regarding Bible contradictions from Mr. Ash. In each case, these are serious questions posed by various individuals who hold themselves out to be scholars, critical thinkers, intellectuals, and the like who collectively fall under the pseudonym of Mr. Ash. These and others are questions which individually and collectively serve as the basis by which we are intended to come to the conclusion that the Bible is not God's word, but rather a collection of myths and fables only to be believed by the simple-minded and the gullible. However, in truth, these 19 and a myriad remaining others are nothing more than apparent contradictions which exist and remain largely, if not exclusively, due in fact to Mr. Ash's inability or unwillingness to do his research coupled with his unwillingness to open his mind and his heart to God and his word. This concludes this episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo dot com thank you for listening